Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Both these drugs are multi-billion dollar blockbuster drugs. They've been taken by hundreds of thousands of patients and have really made an enormous difference in the lives of cancer patients. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Stephanie, what if I told you that the best page-turner I read recently wasn't written by Raymond Chandler, wasn't a detective story, and wasn't even fiction. I'd say it's time for an episode of the Best New Ideas in Money book club. The book is called For Blood and Money, Billionaires, Biotech, and the Quest for a Blockbuster Drug. And the author is Nathan Vardy, the managing editor for Enterprise at MarketWatch. It's about two major new cancer drugs, Imbruvica and Calquence. Vardy traces how each went from chemical compounds in the lab to miracle medications taken every day by hundreds of thousands of patients. You can also say that he demystifies what, for many of us, is a fairly opaque world, biotech and pharma. So Nathan, it is an absolute pleasure to talk to you, a colleague no less, but you know, I have to say, I didn't go into this book thinking a book about hard science and cancer research would interest me as much as it did. And it's almost like a potboiler. I mean, it's got a real thriller and what's going to, you know, page turner element to it. Tell our listeners, in a nutshell, what is this book about? I've been covering cancer drug development and the biotech financing markets for years. But what attracted me to this project was that the story epitomized an era of biotech and cancer drug development. And it was just a great story. At its core, it's the story of the development of two rival cancer drugs that really have made an enormous difference for patients. The way it happened is kind of wild and crazy. It shows what a big role luck and happenstance plays in cancer drug development. It certainly shows the role that money, big money, plays in drug development today. And it also shows that people can really make a difference. I want to ask you about some of these people. You have some amazing characters who, in a few cases, really couldn't be more different than one another. What brought them all together in this corner of the pharmaceutical industry? One theme of this book is that, you know, there are quite a few people here who were impacted personally by cancer and were motivated to make a difference. In some cases, even though on the surface they had no business being in the business of biotechnology. So for example, Robert Duggan is one of the prominent characters in this book, and he 
tragically lost a son at the age of 26 to cancer. And he had no background in cancer drug development. He, in fact, didn't even have a college degree. And yet, I think the loss of his son really motivated him to want to help others and develop drugs that could help cancer patients. And he was a successful businessman. And so he went out and he bought the stock of a company, Pharmacyclics, that was struggling, that was developing cancer drugs, particularly for brain cancer, which was what his son died from. And he got involved in that company, ultimately becoming the CEO. The drug for brain cancer was a flop, but he continued to move forward and as a result played an important role in this story. You know, there's so many of us who are impacted, of course, from cancer. And some of the characters in this book were really motivated to make a difference because of their personal experience, whether directly or indirectly with cancer. You know, something that really fascinated me early on in the book was that both of these drugs almost never made it to market because the pharmaceutical companies who owned them had essentially, like, forgotten about their existence. You write, there are many great drugs trapped in the pipelines of pharmaceutical companies waiting for someone to discover them like buried treasure. How is this possible? What, what's going on here? There are drugs that languish in the bellies of large pharmaceutical conglomerates. And they aren't developed because these companies are kind of burdened by their own processes and procedures. And they just, you know, they're just sitting there. And sometimes they can be fished out for pennies on the dollar, which is an attractive investment, and developed and brought to patients. And this book is definitely about forgotten drugs, which was a big theme, in my opinion, of the biotechnology boom of the previous decade. So for example, one of the drugs was literally trapped at a company called Solera Genomics. Solera thought so little of this drug, Charles, that it didn't even patent it. It sold it essentially for nothing. And, and that drug became Imbruvica, which has now been used to treat hundreds of thousands of patients, particularly in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is the most common form of adult leukemia. And uh, it's one of the most lucrative drugs of all time. So forgotten drugs played a big role in the biotechnology boom of the last decade, which brought almost 400 new drugs approved by the FDA. And a lot of those were oncology medicines. Let's talk about that biotechnology boom. What's the business story here? Yeah, the book is like the big decade, in my opinion, of this kind of biotechnology golden age between 2010 and 2020. It, it kind of takes a good 10, 15 years to develop one of these things. And during this era, the leadership and in innovation was really taken by smaller biotechnology companies from large pharmaceutical firms. The large pharmaceutical firms kind of moved away from innovation in that era. They preferred less risky approaches waiting for other companies to develop drugs and then buying those and marketing them and using their big sales forces. They were very focused on tax arbitrages and mega mergers. That's what the big pharmaceutical companies were doing. The innovation during this era really came from small biotechnology companies that were more nimble, that were able to focus on one or two, as little as one or two medicines, and kind of bet it all on one approach. And as a result, the winnings, the financial winnings from these approaches could be very large. 
And, you know, the risk was also very large. And these companies were able to finance themselves in the stock market with big investors, billionaires, hedge funds, venture firms. And that kind of approach and that kind of funding market drove a lot of the innovation in this, what I view as a kind of golden age of biotechnology. We're entering, obviously, a period where interest rates are rising, worried about a recession. How does this change the landscape? Well, we had a period between, let's call it 2010 to 2020, that decade, and there was a lot of innovation and a lot of drug development. And there were certain circumstances that existed in that era. And it feels to me like that environment is now changing. How that's going to impact innovation to me is very unclear. So it's changing partially for reasons you're pointing to, that the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates in order to fight inflation. And as a result, they have sucked out, in a way, speculative capital out of the most speculative parts of the market, including biotechnology. That's one major change. In addition to that, we have really big political and regulatory changes going on and structural changes. For example, the FDA now is making it much more difficult for reasons that are legitimate to get drugs approved through the accelerated approval program that the drugs that I write about in my book were both first approved by. The government has passed legislation that will allow Medicare to negotiate for the most expensive drugs covered by Medicare. These changes are going to impact the pharmaceutical industry and the economics of the pharmaceutical industry. In addition to that, you have structural changes like that we're all facing. Inflation, things cost more. That means in biotech language that clinical trials are going to cost more. The people that biotech companies hire are going to cost more. So all of these things are going to shift the economics and change them from what they were in that previous decade. And it's just unclear to me what the end result is. Are we going to have 400 novel drugs approved in this next decade like we did in the last decade? And I, I honestly don't know. When we're back, we'll look at the big question. How close are we to curing or treating cancer? That's after the break. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high volume, high speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, Nathan Vardy talked about the biopharma landscape, the people behind drug development, and the two blockbuster medications he wrote about in his book, For Blood and Money. Back to the conversation. 
I saw a story recently in the Wall Street Journal which reported that the U.S. cancer death rate has dropped by like a third since 1991. That seems incredibly promising, but like I'm kind of wondering, what's the big picture? Are we getting any closer to curing cancer? So obviously, the fact that we have had lower cancer death rates is a tremendously positive thing and one that we should all be happy about. Part of the reason for that is that there have been some really terrific advancements in cancer treatment, and that has, to a certain degree, played a role. A much bigger role has played by the fact that we've stopped smoking as a society. And so part of this is what we're doing from a health perspective as a society and how that we see that play out in things like death rates. So when you have all of these things working at the same time, obviously that's that's the best possible outcome. But just to be clear, the majority of that drop has simply to do with the fact that far fewer people smoke in American society today than it did in the past. So what kind of difference have Imbruvica and Calquence made for patients, given what you just said? The drugs that I write about in this book have been most effective in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is the most common form of adult leukemia. Before these drugs came around, patients really didn't have a lot of options. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia, also known as CLL, kind of grows slowly. So usually these patients would go see their doctor and their doctors would say, okay, we're going to monitor this for a bit. And that's usually how the conversations would go. And then eventually, from the vast majority of patients, things would change. They would go to their doctor and their doctor would say, okay, now things are starting to look not so good. And really at that point, the whole tempo and pace and severity of the conversation would change very abruptly. In reporting this book, it was really incredible to talk to veteran CLL doctors. This was a really tough time. It was very frustrating for them. They just had nothing to give to the patients. They had nothing that they could really do. And this went on year after year after year after year. And then you get these drugs known as BTK inhibitor drugs, and they just revolutionize everything. Suddenly, there are options. And not only are there options, but these are pills. So people could take them at home, it's not very intrusive. The side effects were relatively limited, and people were able to live on these drugs for years in many cases. So it really kind of changed the whole landscape. And I'm hopeful that we'll see more innovation that'll help more patients in the future. So that's great news, but it really comes with a catch, which is that these drugs are really expensive. I mean, we're talking in the neighborhood of 200000 a year for a drug that a patient may be on for years. Do I have that right? Well, for as long as it works, yes. So it is, as I say in the book, in a kind of crass way, it's kind of like a subscription model. The patient has to continue to take the drug every day for years. So you can see from a financial perspective why it's been so lucrative. And it's also very expensive from a public policy perspective as well. And and it can be very difficult for some patients to deal with that cost, particularly those who are kind of middle class and they fall into these these kind of donut holes where they get a certain amount of coverage, but they still have to pay a certain amount out of pocket because they kind of surpass these income limits. And for those people, it's a really difficult decision. And that's a big 
public policy issue that I think as a nation we should grapple with more carefully. So the pharmaceutical industry, I guess, would argue that there's a pretty good reason why these drugs are so expensive. Namely, that they're pricing in the cost of the drugs that fail into the cost of the drugs that succeed. And far more of these drugs fail than succeed. That's one way of looking at it, like a portfolio approach. But really what's going on here, Charles, in my opinion, is we live, for better or for worse, in a system that's driven by capitalism. And it's really driven on risk and reward. So people take risk developing these drugs with the expectation that there's going to be a reward for the few times that they work. And if that expectation doesn't exist, they're going to be much less inclined to take the risk. That, to me, is the real dynamic that's at play when you think of drug development today. So for listeners out there who might be wondering, just how rare are new drugs that work? About one in every 10 drugs end up working. The vast majority of drugs that are tested in human beings, patients, fail. So it's exceptionally hard to get a winning drug to patients. It's just a very, very difficult game. Reading your book, I felt that you highlighted what a lot of us might think of as unlikely heroes, pharmaceutical companies and investors. What's your perspective on this? Well, I wanted to write a book that would show how two very successful drugs were developed and brought to patients. And they were developed by biotech companies that were financed by investors. That's how we develop drugs in the United States. And so it's interesting to me that there's such a political backlash against drug companies in the United States. It's very real. People really don't like drug companies. They are upset about the high cost of prescription drugs. And I think there is a completely legitimate debate about the high price of drugs in America and what we should do about it, how we should think about it. At the same time, sometimes in America, our political discourse, I know this might surprise you, kind of goes off the rails. So for example, there was a survey not so long ago about which industries are the most hated in America. There's like a Gallup poll. And drug companies finished below the tobacco companies. So how is it that companies that at the end of the day are engaged in the pursuit of developing medicines, how could they be less popular than the tobacco companies? And that's a question I would ask all our listeners if that feels appropriate to you. Are, Are these drug companies that evil that they should be seen as worse than tobacco companies? Right. I mean, you can understand why consumers are frustrated by the high cost of prescription medication. But on the other hand, serious time and money went into developing these things. And in this case, they really have changed people's lives. Is there a way to fix this? I mean, do you have any new ideas? It's such a complex issue. I'm so deeply sympathetic about it. I wish I had an answer for you, Charles. And I I don't. My little contribution, I hope, to this debate is to write a book that can inform people about 
how these drugs, these very important drugs, were developed. Um, not shying away from the cost issue, both how much it costs to develop them and also how much they cost individuals in society. So that people can get a sense of, of what really that process looks like, maybe to inform them a little bit when these debates take place so that they have the knowledge. It's such a hard issue. You know, The Economist recently reviewed my book. And at the end of the review, the reviewer, you know, raised a really good question. They're like, look, I just read this book and I see all this money and testosterone and wild risk. And you just read it and you're like, there's got to be another way to do this. Like, is this the only way? And I felt that was like a really legitimate question to ask. And my answer, at least from my seat, is I just don't know what the other way to do it is. I'm not saying there isn't one. I just don't know. Obviously, in the book, you have several acknowledgments at the end, from family to to people in the industry. But the dedication is to a very different group of people. Talk about who you dedicated the book to and why. So I dedicated the book to all the patients who volunteer to participate in clinical trials. You need those really brave people who volunteer to participate and take an experimental medicine before it's been approved in order to help themselves and also help the broader scientific pursuit. And I just think it takes a tremendous amount of courage. And I didn't want to lose sight of that in writing about a book about big money and people fighting and litigation and big corporations and intrigue that ultimately at the core of all this is there are patients. And I think that those who Volunteer for clinical trials deserve all our thanks and gratitude. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Nathan Vardy. To learn more about drug development, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoff, and Katie Ferguson. Steve Cooper mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Tim Rostin was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.